All right, morning, everybody. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Pastor Jim, and if I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service today. Uh, one quick announcement. Uh, if you're in my small group, the, uh, the small group part is going to be at the church tonight, so uh, not at Jim and Tana's. So the other thing, uh, Alice, uh, Alice Henderson just let me know about this, is uh, over the weekend, uh, Kaylin Mayhew had to go into the hospital for a GI bleed, and they're going to keep her there till Tuesday. And so um, she's doing all right, but they still want to keep her. And uh, we just want to be in prayer with her. She's at Alice Virginia Mason. Yeah. So um, if you have any more questions, uh, Alice and Dave have been in really good contact with them. So let me just pray real quick uh, for, for Kaylin and Bill and, and her healing. Father God, we uh, thank you uh, for Bill and Kaylin. We pray for Kaylin and her body right now. Uh, we pray that you'd be with the doctors. We pray that you would heal her um, and that you would um, do so quickly and that you would relieve the pain and heal her body so that she can um, be back with us here in our community here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 2, continuing in our series on John. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles in front of you, it's on page 887. If you were a Christian in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, you were aware of a of a little Christian, Christian fad that we had called WWJD. Some of you may have even owned uh, the little bracelets and the other memorabilia that was made uh, by this. Uh, if you weren't around or weren't very cognizant of world events in 1990s, um, WWJD stood for What Would Jesus Do? It was a well-intentioned reminder, I think, that uh, once... It got printed on a lot of things, got a little out of hand, but it was a good idea in that it was to help people remember to be like Jesus. Now, it's sort of funny that we needed a nice bracelet to tell us that, but again, there was good intentions here. It was usually done to remind people to be more kind, to be more loving, to treat people as Jesus would treat them. And it was a good idea. And it served its time and its place. But it also gave way to one of my favorite internet memes, which, go ahead, Matt, can you get that on there? This one makes me giggle. But uh, it says, if someone asks, what would Jesus do? Remind them that turning over tables and breaking out whips is a possibility. It's very normal for us to think, okay, what would Jesus do? He would be kind. He would be loving. That's a part of Jesus that's very easy for us to understand. But then there are these stories in the Bible that maybe don't fit exactly within that nice mold. And today our story is a story of Jesus flipping over tables and using a whip to drive people and animals out of a certain area. 
So we have to ask the question, what does this have to do with my life and following Jesus? What does this tell me about Jesus? Other than apparently he didn't like tables. See, one of the things that we're going to see today is Jesus' function as a judge. And I want us to see how we can combine our understanding with the more, the easier parts of Jesus, the kind and loving. Yes, Jesus was the most loving and kind and nicest person who ever lived. But that's not all there is to Jesus. He is also the judge of humanity. And I want to look at our story this morning, and our big idea this morning is this, as the Son of God, Jesus is the judge of all people. And so the first part of our story is, number one, in your outline there, in your bullets, and Jesus judges the temple. So let's start by looking at verses 13 and 14 of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus was an observant Jew. He followed the Jewish law and the Jewish customs of his day, including celebrating the festival Passover. Passover was a celebration of when the Israelites, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the plagues, and the last plague was the death of the firstborn. And the Israelites were instructed to take a lamb, to kill it, to spread its blood over the door of their house, and if they were obedient in that demonstration of faith, the angel of death would pass over that house and no one would die. And so God commanded that the Jewish people celebrate that with a festival every year, and a part of that you would go to Jerusalem. Now Jesus, when he is in the temple, the worship place of the Jewish people, what does he see? He sees those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. Now, why were they there? Well, if you were going to the temple, you needed to do an animal sacrifice. But if you travel from a long distance, it was much easier for you to purchase an animal while in Jerusalem. The other thing that you needed to do was to pay a temple tax. Well, if you were coming from another country, you would need to convert your currency into the currency of the temple tax. And so there is the necessity of money changers. But what does Jesus do when he sees what's going on in the temple? And we're going to get to this in in a second, but the problem is is that these actions are happening inside the temple area. So Jesus, let's go verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, excuse me, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
Jesus makes a whip, presumably mostly to be used on the animals, and drives them out. He takes the money where the coins were being exchanged and flips it over and declares a judgment statement at the end of verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. First of all, he calls it his father's house, preparing people for a greater understanding that will be explored later in John, that Jesus knew he was the Son of God and claimed that, but that the problem was not necessarily that people could buy animals or would exchange their money while in Jerusalem, but that this was being done inside the temple area. Historically, we know that at other times, these uh, booths for selling animals and exchanging money happened outside of the temple in the Mount of Olives in the Kidron Valley. But what had happened was, in the ideas of expediency and I think better profit, they'd moved right into the temple. And what I think this shows us is that they were worried more about doing better business than about worship. So again, the problem is itself wasn't that you could buy an animal when you got there. It's not that Jesus was saying, guys, you should have brought your own animal. But that they'd moved the business into the church, thus showing that, or into the temple, thus showing that the business was more important than the worship at the temple. To do better business, to make better profits, they impeded worship thus showing what their true God was. Now, interestingly, John shows us in verse 17 what the disciples thought of all this. Look at verse 17. His disciple remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quotation of Psalm 69.9. And John, the narrator, John, the author, is telling us that the disciples, whose, whose understanding at times was very limited, but here, while limited, is still correct. That they see this as a sign of a fulfillment of prophecy. That as Jesus is cleansing the temple, he is fulfilling the word of the Lord spoke in the Psalms. He is showing that he is the one, the promised Savior from the Old Testament. And that he is showing us how to live by being consumed with a passion for the worship of God. Now there is a sense, and we'll get to this in a little bit, there is a sense in which the psalmist may be speaking even better than he knows. And that in one sense, Jesus' life will be consumed for the house of God. That he will give up his life to make worshipers out of rebels. To bring a sinful people back to the God whom they should worship. 
But the question after seeing all of this take place, here's the natural question. Who is Jesus that he has the authority to run everybody out of the temple like this? Right, sort of, who do you think you are to flip over all these tables and to make a whip and drive all the animals out? It's the natural question, and it's the question that the Jewish people of that time asked Jesus. So let's look at verses 18 18, uh, through 20. So the Jews said to him, they said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? The Jewish people come to Jesus and ask, Who are you to do this? What gives you the authority? What sign do you want to show us that you can do this? And Jesus says, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I've not been to Israel. I've seen pictures. I've seen drawings. Some of you have been. The temple area and the temple itself, when it was fully there, quite large. (laughs) Now, I'm not a builder either, but I'm pretty sure you can't build it in three days. And that's how the Jews respond in verse 20. Now, there is a question in, in the translation there if it's, it says, if it's better said it has taken 46 years or it has been built for 46 years. You can ask me about that if you have questions later. But the idea is to raise it up in three days, impossible. Completely impossible to do this. So why would Jesus say it? Why, why, why would he say, why would he point to something that cannot happen as a sign? John helps us in verses 21 and 22 to understand this. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John tells us that Jesus was not literally talking about the temple structure. Because, yeah, to to destroy that temple and to build up that building, it could not be done in three days. But if that claim couldn't get any stranger, John tells us that the temple Jesus was talking about was his body, which leads us to that next question. Why is Jesus' body the temple? And how can Jesus' body be rebuilt after three days? To help us understand that we need to understand what the temple 
was meant to signify. The first thing that we understand is that the temple is God's presence among his people. It is a visual representation of God being among his people. In the Old Testament, God shown us that when the temple was built by Solomon, God came in this glorious cloud and rested on the temple. Thus helping people understand that this building, the building itself is not important, but what it points to is that this is a sign of God's presence among his people. The other thing that the temple is, is it's, it is the place where God and man can meet. The temple signified a place where God's holy God and a sinful man can come together and meet. So how is Jesus both the presence of God and the place where God and man come together? Verse 22 helps us understand the answer to that question. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the first thing, and we saw this in the first chapter of John, that Jesus is God among his people. He is God made flesh and dwelt among us. So in that way, he is the temple in that he is not just a symbol of God among his people, but that he is literally God among his people. But then secondly, in reference to the resurrection here in verse 22, we see that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he brought together, he reconciled God and man and became the meeting place of a holy God and a sinful people. One author has explained it this way, the human body of Jesus was the place where a unique manifestation of God took place and consequently became the only true temple, the only center of true worship. It is through the life, death, and resurrection that God of Jesus Christ, that God is among his people and that through Jesus we can be in relationship with God. We can meet God with the hope one day of meeting him face to face. There's no temple in the picture of heaven because God is completely with his people. And we see at the end of verse 22 that the disciples took all this in, and again, some of it became more clear after the resurrection. But what is it said? They believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. The message that Jesus is the better temple, that he is the meeting place of God and his people, that the response to that is faith in what Jesus said. 
And so there's a call for us to believe that, that Jesus is more than a man, that he is God himself and has come to reconcile God and man. And the response of that is faith. And so even in Jesus' judgment of the people and their use of the temple, Jesus shows that judgment is not the only response. That judgment is not the only consequence of his coming. But that he offers through faith to reconcile you with the God who created you through faith. So in our story, Jesus judges the temple, but in the next part of the story, Jesus judges the heart. Let's look at verses 23 to 25. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is another story that maybe goes a different direction than we might think originally. We're told in verse 23 that, that many people believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. But in verse 24, we see that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. In one sense, Jesus does not accept their faith. So we have to ask why. Why? Why would Jesus not entrust himself to people? Doesn't, want Je- doesn't Jesus want all people to be saved? Doesn't Jesus want all people to place their faith in him? So why would Jesus deny the faith of these people? Let's look at what the text says. Look at verse 24. But Jesus did not, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. And no one needed to bear witness about man, for, Je- for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not entrust himself to these people because he knew who they really were. He knew past what they showed on the outside. He looked into their heart. See, when we talk about Jesus as judge, we need to understand that Jesus doesn't just see what we do. Okay, if you're a regular judge in a legal system, you look at the actions of an individual. And you have to make a decision based on that. But Jesus is the greater judge. Jesus can actually look into your heart and see what is true. To use the language of verse 25, he himself knew what was in man. 
There is no fooling Jesus. There is no pretending. There's no lying with Jesus because he knows your heart. And he was able to look into the hearts of these people and see that their faith was not real faith at all. So how do we know what is real faith? If you compare verses 22 and 23, I think you see a difference. Verse 22 says, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But in verse 23, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. One of the interesting things in history is that the people who lived around the time of Jesus, even those who were not believers, never questioned that he did miracles. That was always, you see this in the writings of Josephus, a historian of that time. You see this in the words of the Pharisees in the later parts of the Gospels. But what you also see are people who follow Jesus around because of the miracles and only for the miracles. Let me give you a good example. This is from John chapter 6. This is Jesus talking. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're following me because I gave you free bread. (laughs) And so what this helps us understand is that in this verse, what we are seeing here are people who are following Jesus for the benefits alone. They don't have real faith in him as the Messiah, as the promised Savior, but they are trying to see some tricks, see some magic tricks, and get stuff from Jesus. Or maybe they see Jesus as a means to an end, that they see the power in which he does things, and they think, well, he'll kick the Romans out of oppressing us, and he'll be our political leader. So they had faith in the power of, of Jesus. They had faith in the benefits that they could receive from Jesus, but they don't have faith in Jesus because Jesus knows the heart. Again, we contrast this with what John says in verse 22, that the disciples believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. They believed what Jesus said about himself, and they placed their faith in him. A relationship with Jesus is not just what can I get Jesus to do for me. A relationship with Jesus understands that he is the son of God in flesh who died for my sins and rose again so that I could rise again to eternal life with God forever. couple points of application as we close up this morning. Number one is this, believe in the greater temple who was destroyed and raised up for you. Jesus is the only place where God and sinful man come together. 
through Jesus and through Jesus alone can we have access to a relationship with the Father. Jesus is the only temple. And no other way will bring us to meet God. Number two, know that Jesus is your judge. Jesus knows your heart. He has the authority to judge your heart. And one day, all of us will stand before Jesus as judge. Listen to the words of the Nicene Creed, one of the oldest uh, summaries of the Christian faith. It says this about Jesus. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he will come come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. But the good news is that Jesus, while he is our judge, he also made a way for us to be forgiven and found innocent. And that it is through faith in him and his death on the cross that, the right, that Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, we can boldly stand before him because we know that through him we have been forgiven and given his righteousness. And thirdly, Jesus knows your heart. You can't hide anything from Jesus. You might be able to fool others, but you can't fool Jesus. And because of that, you need to repent today. I'm reminded of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So today in our story in John, we see what we might call another side of Jesus. And that while Jesus was the kindest and most loving man who ever lived, he is also our judge. And we need to be prepared to stand before him. And the only way to do that is through faith in him, the better temple who died and rose again after three days so that we could be brought back to God and reconciled to him now and forever. Let's pray. Father God, that we would hear your words, that we would believe the words of Jesus and the scripture today that we would repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, the better temple, knowing that you don't just look at outward appearances, but you look into the heart. God, that we would repent of our sin today and that we would find forgiveness and reconciliation 
through the cross of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.